June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? And his name is Major. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program. You know it's called The Takeout. Do you know why you're here? Politics, policy, a little bit of pop culture, and we're back in restaurants, I'm happy to say. We're at Atlas Brewing Company, right downtown Washington, D.C., sort of downtown, right near Nationals Ballpark. We're here in part because this facility is mostly fueled by, if that's the proper term, renewable energy. Mostly solar, is what I'm told. It also serves pizza, and as you gather from the uh, name Atlas Brewing Company, something else we shall not partake in for the moment. Our special guest this week is the Energy Secretary of the United States, Jennifer Granholm. Madam Secretary, it's great to see you. Great to be here. Thanks for coming to a solar-powered brewery. And we will get to the implications of renewable energy in a moment, but there's a lot going on in Washington that I need to get your appraisal of, at least as a member of the Cabinet for President Biden. So we're recording this on September 28th. So dear listeners and viewers, some of this may be overtaken by events, but we're going to try our best to read into the future as best we can. There are so many things going on in Washington. Let me first, Madam Secretary, ask you for the Department of Energy and for the country at large, the risks of another government shutdown. Oh, well, clearly, there's so many risks to it that it won't happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. No. Why? I'm very confident that it is not going to happen because there's just for for the, the world, you appeal to people. Why have people been sent to this place if it's not to make sure that government is functioning? And that would be a colossal failure. So it is not going to happen. Got it. And uh, related to that is the full faith and credit of the United States. You were former governor of Michigan for two terms. You watched this drama play out from the position of a governor of a major uh, industrial yes. state, an economically vital state to our country. You probably were anxious about that then. I'm curious about your level of anxiety about it now. Well, when I was governor, actually... We had to shut down government because we could not reach an agreement. But I don't think that's going to happen this time because we do have um, the president's party in control, even albeit slim, right. of, uh, of both chambers and reasonable folks on both sides of the aisle who know how devastating it would be for financial markets, for the, the reputation of the United States globally, not to mention uh, the functioning of government for critical services that people need. So this is why I do not think it's going to happen. So there'll be no default on the full faith and credit of the United States? there will not be. So I wonder if you think, Madam Secretary, we've crossed a kind of threshold. 
I've been in Washington since 1990. I've covered no end of shutdown dramas, real and imagined. Sure. I've covered no end of default dramas, real and imagined. But in the end, especially when it came, came to the full faith and credit of the United States, raising the debt ceiling, which is the technical terminology, both sides linked arms. Tough vote, not always easy, not always pleasant. But now they're not. Republicans are like, we're not helping. Is that a threshold we've crossed over that's dangerous? I, I hope it's not. You know, I mean, as everybody uh, who's been here and you know, you know, this is, uh, I think uh, Dick Durbin, Senator Durbin said it's like um, dining and dashing. You've already, you've already ordered your food, you have eaten your food, and then you're going to leave without paying. This is all for expenditures that have already been approved. This is, these were approved by Republicans and Democrats, much of them approved under the Trump administration. So you have to be responsible adults. So I, you know, again, I, I just cannot see, because this has happened 80 times in the past, Democrats and Republicans came together under the Trump administration to raise the debt ceiling numerous times. I just, uh, I, I think that reasonable minds will come together. I referred to your tenure as two-term governor of Michigan. You pay attention to international finance. Most other countries don't have this process where they have to constantly raise the debt ceiling. I want your opinion on that. Yeah. It's a technical matter. No, I mean, it is really a, a quirk of the United States that it happens. It started, you know, obviously decades and decades ago. Uh, you know, it's. I, I wish we didn't have to see this drama because it ends up being a political weapon rather than a responsible governance practice. And so, unfortunately, that's where we are. But I really do think that there are enough reasonable people, despite the wild partisanship that exists in Washington, I do believe that there are enough reasonable people to be able to get this across the finish line. And, you know, exhibit A of that is that we had reasonable people come together to agree on an infrastructure bill of both parties. So let's try to keep that in mind. At least in the United States Senate. We'll see about the House yes. of Representatives. That's a part of the agenda on the calendar here in Washington this week. Maybe it might bleed into next week. I promise you we'll get to that. But I know you said you don't anticipate actually having a government shutdown, but as a cabinet secretary, you are required to make some preparations. Of we are. Everyone in the cabinet is required to make some preparations, have yes. you? Yes, yes, we are in the process of doing that. That is required. I mean, you know, the Department of Management and Budget, uh, they send out the requirements, the steps you must take in preparation. Um, so we are doing that as well. And for the benefit of my audience who may not know, the Department of Energy sounds like it's the Department of Making Energy. It is, of course, not. It actually has another component part that most people don't necessarily initially associate with the Department of Energy, which deals with nuclear weapons production, maintenance, safety, the storage of, safely and otherwise, of nuclear waste. How much of that falls under the heading of essential personnel that would not be touched by a shutdown, even if it were to come? Well, as you can imagine, because you want to have a stockpile that is safe, secure, and effective, and that that means it involves national security and the security of our nation. You can imagine that a good chunk of that is um, essential and therefore should not be touched. Is most of your department essential? I would say all of my department is essential. <laughs> we have no unessential. No cabinet secretary right. would say anything other than that. 
<laughs> but under the rubric of essential workers in the terms of a shutdown, do you know what the percentage is at DOE? Uh, I don't know the percentage off the top Most of my of head. But, uh, you know, as you can imagine, the na- we oversee, as you can, the nation's electric grid, for right. example. And you want to make sure that people have electricity. Um, you know, the, the rules and regulations regarding pipelines, all of that. We want to make sure that the nation's energy flows. So, um, you know, we, we perform an essential fu- function for the country. So we're going to go to break in about two minutes, and I want to start the conversation on infrastructure. But before we get to that in specifics with the legislation, one component part, and you just mentioned it, of infrastructure, is pipelines, electrical grids. Well, anyone who remembers Colonial Pipeline remembers there was a ransomware cyber attack. Things were unstable for a while. What are your thoughts looking back on that? What's the state of cyber security around those facilities? Where are we? Yeah, well, at that time, we did not even have an oversight body for the pipeline functioning, um, other than the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which approves the pi- laying of pipelines, to be, but the operation of pipelines, because they're all privately held. Right. So what we did is we looped the pipeline under the same kind of umbrella that we have for the electrical system, which is like a public-private group that oversees cybersecurity, uh, resiliency, reliability. And so now, tucked under that is the pipeline realm. And so that's what we're working on now, setting up the same kind of oversight body that we have on the electricity side. Meaning post-colonial pipeline, there are more eyeballs on this yes. matter now? Yes, and we're and working more, on- And more power for the federal government? Well, no, it's it's actually more a collaboration. Group. It's more collaboration, right? It is a collaboration with the private sector to ensure that the pipelines are speaking to one another, like the electricity grids do, because they're all separate pipelines, and you want to make sure you get the fuel to where it needs to go. And sometimes that might have to go through different players. So, making sure that there is collaboration, transparency. And that we have mechanisms in place to talk to one another if there is, for example, a ransomware attack or a cyber attack of some kind. Classic case of the private sector feeling something it hadn't felt before and needing some help. Correct. Jennifer Granholm is our special guest. She is the Energy Secretary of the United States Government. I am Major Garrett. We are at Atlas Brewing Company. Excuse me. Lost my breath there for just a second. Just outside of Nationals Park. Stay tuned for segment two of The Takeout in just one moment. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great-tasting, high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. What a month it's been here at The Takeout. We started it with with David Petraeus. We talked about Afghanistan. Then we talked to Ken Burns. We talked to him about his four-part documentary on Muhammad Ali. Last week, Dr. Anthony Fauci. This week, we're rounding out an incredible month for this program with the Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm. Madam Secretary, thanks for rounding out this very important month of the show. Um, So, before we get to infrastructure, I want to talk to you about climate change, because you recently gave an interview where you used a phrase the president's used, hair on fire. Why Mm -hmm. is our hair on fire, or why should it feel like that? Well, because our our planet's on fire, because the whole west of the country has been on fire due to 
droughts. Uh, and obviously, every one of these extreme climate events is an exclamation point for why we have to act on climate. As of right now, one in three Americans just this past summer has experienced an extreme weather event. And if we don't take care of it, we're going to continue to pay these exponentially growing costs of cleaning up after these extreme weather events. It is simply not acceptable to stay where we are. And that one in three number, folks, if you're curious about it, uh, Google the Washington Post, because what they did was to come up with this one in three number, they looked at federal emergency management agency declarations related strictly to weather and did the geography and then did the population and then did the ratios. So these are things declared by the federal government, huge weather events and where people have lived and that's how you get this one in three Americans just this summer. Just this summer. And look at this, though. This is what kills me, is that if you think about the cost. So, so back in the 80s, we spent about $15 billion a year cleaning up after these extreme weather events. And then in the 90s, it got to like $30 billion. Last year, we, last, in the past three years, we have spent $121 billion each year. So you see these costs really ratchet up. This past summer, with all of these extreme weather events, it will be the coolest summer of our lifetime. We have got to get our act together. And there would be those in my audience who say, well, Governor Granholm, formerly of Michigan, uh, big three automakers, fossil fuels, all that stuff. You kind of have some explaining to do historically on this issue. Yes? No? Maybe? Well, definitely. The, the transportation sector is, you know, one third of our greenhouse gas emissions. So, yeah, we got to get our act together. So I was governor when the auto industry went bankrupt, when the suppliers to the auto industry went bankrupt. One of the reasons why, in addition to the financial meltdown, but was because of the threat from more fuel efficient imports from Japanese automakers, for example. So when the, when the meltdown happened, when the auto industry went bankrupt, the Obama-Biden administration said, we're going to invest in electric vehicles and the guts to the electric vehicle, which is the battery. And so Michigan raised its hand and said, we want to diversify. We, ma we made car 1.0. We want to make car 2.0. And we want to go into the electric vehicle. And so right now, you're seeing the benefits of the groundwork that was laid because of all of this electrification. And so we've got to make sure that we follow that up and have the infrastructure necessary so that people can feel comfortable driving an electric vehicle. Ford is not a sponsor of this program. It may never be a sponsor of this program, but it made news on the day we are recording this podcast, September 28th. It announced two new massive investments, one in Western Kentucky, one in what uh, Western Tennessee, rather, and Central Kentucky. In Western Tennessee, Stanton, Tennessee, they're opening a mega campus called Blue Oval City. $5.6 billion electric vehicle investment, 6,000 brand new jobs. There'll be a battery manufacturing plant, Blue Oval SK, in Central Kentucky, 5,000 jobs, 5.8 billion. So for those who think, well, it's just politicians saying, oh, there are jobs out there if we do this, this suggests that there are. Oh, there definitely are jobs out there if you do this, if you electrify. I mean, their partner is SK, um, which is a Korean battery manufacturer, but the president has said, we want to get that whole battery supply chain in the United States. And right now, Asia has had a huge chunk of it, although Michigan has got a lot of the foundation based upon the Recovery Act from, uh, from the Obama-Biden administration. 
this is really 11,000 jobs, $11 billion of investment. GM is making similar levels of investment. You recall a few weeks ago, the auto industry, uh, represented by the Detroit Three, but the whole auto industry came on board and said, we are going to sell, by 2030, half of our entire new car fleet will be electric vehicles. So this train is coming, and it's very exciting. Where do you charge these? Madam Secretary. Well, that's the question, right? So you see the private sector, the charging companies that have installed charging stations now, they put them where they can make their money, which understandable, they're private right. sector entities. So they put them often in higher income places where there's a greater density where people have these electric vehicles. But what about the more rural areas? What about the freeways? What about areas that are lower income where you want to incentivize them to be able to take on electric vehicles? This is what the infrastructure plan has got planned. It's a it's right. a it's a multi-billion dollar investment in creating 250,000 charging stations across the nation that the president wanted. It's in that infrastructure plan and hopefully by the time people are listening to that to this this will have been voted on. Right. So let's get to that matter. Um, you're a good loyal democrat. You've been in the party for a long time. You understand the tension between so-called moderate, so-called progressives. That's what they call themselves. I don't really get into that game, but that's how we're sort of subdividing this world. There's this whole intense conversation going on hour by hour in Washington this week. Well, do you vote on the infrastructure bill? And if you do that and it's heading to the president's desk, does that mean there is no larger investment in so-called soft infrastructure, child tax credits, uh, universal pre-K, elder care? Don't forget climate. And climate. Mm -hmm. Give me your thoughts on that. And I know you probably have to choose your words somewhat carefully as a member of the president's cabinet, but your thoughts. Well, let me just say, the president's, Speak Democrats. the president's whole agenda is build back better. So we got the first piece through both chambers, hopefully, which is bipartisan. And the second piece is equally important. And so for those uh, who care, and, and Democrats and Republicans care about the climate warming, worsening, our resilience to be able to manage this, if you care about that, you want to have that second piece go through as well. The long pole in the tent is the clean electricity payment program, and then there's tax credits associated with incentivizing folks to be able to put solar and wind out, etc. But it's more than just renewables. It is also nuclear, making sure we've got clean, dispatchable, baseload power. So there's just a lot in there for the climate as well as the human infrastructure, meaning every other country, or many other countries, advanced nations, are helping families with childcare, for example. You want to make sure that women are participating in the workforce. I mean, it should be women and men uh, participating in the workforce. We have to have good options for childcare. We just do. And we are so unique as a nation that we don't do that. So let's get that in there. That's great for the economy. And I bet you, you know, a lot of businesses like the idea of not having to do that. Right. So let's get down to brass tacks. For those progressives who are saying, we're not voting for the infrastructure bill until we have passage of the other larger so-called reconciliation bill, what would you say to them? I say both are really important. Let's vote when we can and get them through. We want to, It doesn't diminish the importance of the soft infrastructure part, the reconciliation bill, if we do the, if we do the um, infrastructure bill first. I mean, it doesn't, that's still going to happen. You know, we've that's got, still going to happen. Yes, of course. We have Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi in charge of the agenda. But so they're you know the progressives fear that if the infrastructure bill is approved, then suddenly the so-called moderates in the Senate back away from anything 
on reconciliation and you can't get anything passed. Yeah, but I, there are, there's lots to love in the reconciliation bill as proven by polls that are out this week that showed that the American people love every single piece of this, especially that it's paid for. So in the end, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, the two Democrats who have been wobbly on this, will vote for a reconciliation bill. I, I think they will. It may not look exactly as it looks right now, but I, I believe for their constituents, they want to see something significant happening too. And it has been written more than once this week that the fate of the Biden presidency, at least on domestic issues, hangs in the balance this week and next. Do you agree? No, I don't agree. I do think that it's very important to get his agenda through. But I also think that most of us have a, a memory as long as that of a gnat. So with, there's this is, you know, year one of a four-year term. So there's lots of time. However, it is really important, no doubt, to get this these very significant bills through, especially since we don't know what's going to happen politically in 2022. And you want to have something solid in that first two years of an administration. The memory of a gnat, present company excluded. I'm Major Garrett, Secretary of Energy, <laughs> Jennifer Granholm is our, <laughs> our special guest. Back for segment three in a second. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We are at Atlas Brewing Company. It's mostly solar powered. It has another facility here in the Washington, D.C. area that's fully solar powered. That's part of the meme, if you will, of this conversation with the Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm. Um, let me run some stats by you, Madam Secretary. Uh, they're from your own uh, Department of Energy, which is a great resource of numbers about everything energy in, in, in America. And it goes like this. So we as a nation, create, as I read, 4 billion kilowatt hours of electricity a year. That's called four quads to the people who are really, really into this stuff. So fossil fuels produce about 60% of that electricity. Natural gas is most of it. Coal, about 19%. Nuclear power, you mentioned earlier, 20%. Then renewables, 19%. And in the renewable sphere, wind, 8%. Hydro, 7.3. Solar, 2. Biomass, 1.4. So again, there's this conversation. Geez, fossil fuels, we're still really reliant on that, and we're gonna be reliant on them for a long while. Aren't we, aren't we still going to need them as part of this mix? We're not gonna to totally overtake them in the next five or 10 years, are we? Well, the goal, of course, the president wants to get 100% of our electricity from clean sources by 2035. And the question is how you define clean. How do you define clean? Right, precisely. right. So, so, so some natural only gas is certainly cleaner than coal. It, it's cleaner, but if but it, it still emits. It emits right. both beth methane, which yep. is a very potent greenhouse gas, and it emits carbon, CO2. So the question is, can you remove, can you decarbonize right. fossil fuels? And so some of the investments, for example, in that infrastructure bill would be to have pilots 
to for carbon capture and sequestration, mm -hmm. where you remove the carbon at the point of, of uh, combustion and you put it underground. Right. And so uh, that has happened in other realms, that kind of practice. And so we want to see how far we can get on it. Other countries are doing it as well. And they are also looking at America for the technology. So we want to take it to scale and see if decarbonizing can be one way of getting to that clean. But there's a bunch of other stuff too. Geothermal, we don't use enough geothermal, the heat beneath our feet. We don't pull it up in order to make clean, dispatchable baseload power. We have some hydropower, but we're seeing in this era of droughts that that is reducing yes. because of the the loss of volume of dams, etc. By definition, for hydropower, you need water. Right, exactly. But and when can the water you, dries up, you so have limited resources. I just have to say, we are, Department of Energy is the solutions department. We have 17 national laboratories. We are focused on next generation technology all the time, in addition to focusing on deployment. But our history has been really focusing on these labs. We got almost 100,000 people working on these solutions. So when you think about hydropower, what about small hydropower? What about hydropower that you can put in something that's more modular? and just move the water, because really it's about the movement of water, right? What about tidal power? We have oceans covering massive amounts of the, of the earth. What if we could capture some of that in a passive way to be able to, pop, to generate power? What about I mean, the next generation nuclear? Small nuclear, modular nuclear. What do you think the possibilities there are? I've read things that sound like we're on the cusp of something that could be amazing. Yeah. The, in actually, terms of modular or small scale nuclear power generation. Right. We have just, um, the Department of Energy has an advanced reactor demonstration program that we just partnered uh, and have uh, financed New Scale, which is, I mean, excuse me, Terra Power, which is a actual a Bill Gates investment company. And what's interesting about this, it's a smaller uh, reactor than what you would see in these bigger reactors. Uh, and it's actually being placed adjacent to a coal mine that has um, gone away. So the coal mines ha have access to electricity to, to the grid. And if you could put these smaller, mo more modular advanced reactors near or adjacent to on top of coal mines, then you might be able to take advantage of the infrastructure as well as provide clean energy. So there's a fancy word that people in Washington use sometimes called, well, it's not in my remit, meaning my set, set of responsibilities. P part of the Department of Energy's remit, set of responsibilities, is storage of nuclear waste. Mm -hmm. I know this very well Correct. because one of the, first, the very first place I worked as a journalist for a salary was in Amarillo, Texas. Started there in June of 1984. I was a police reporter, but in around West Texas, the Department of Energy was exploring the possibility of two sites for underground storage of nuclear waste. Neither was approved. Then I moved to Las Vegas, Nevada. And Nevada became the place for the nuclear waste storage. And then Harry Reid got involved and lots of other people got involved and it's still held in abeyance. What is the status of nuclear waste storage in this country and are we ever going to get better at it than we are now? Because we're not very good at it. We're, we're we do not, a terrible not, job at it. Yeah, I mean, we what we have to do, and this was, there was a Blue Ribbon Commission on nuclear uh, waste. And in that Blue Ribbon com Commission, it was under the Obama administration, it's toward the end of it, 
they, uh, the commission decided we have got to do a consent-based strategy. So the problem with Yucca Mountain in right. Nevada was that it... No consent. There was no consent, and so... It was it, known in Nevada as the Screw Nevada Bill. Right, exactly. So what we are going to do is the Department of Energy is to put out a sort of request for information to see who's willing to have who this... Who Who's willing to have this conversation? <laughs> and, of course, there'll be compensation for it. And there are some regions of the country that are not against nuclear and that are, would be open to it. So, so that process will begin before the end of the year to be able to get going on it. Um, and at the same time, in these advanced reactors, micro-reactors, small modular reactors, they make less waste mm -hmm. also. So there's a benefit of moving to next generation technology in addition to finding a consent-based solution to waste. And the consent-based solution is predicated, I would assume, on some assurance that this can be safely stored. Of course, of you course. You believe it can? Oh, absolutely it can be, absolutely it can be. Other countries do it all the time. We have done it. We, we have an interim facility that we are doing it in, but we need to find a permanent facility. We need to find a solution for the reactors that exist. And, and you know, when you think about clean energy, and people often chafe at nuclear because of the waste issue mm -hmm. and because some who uh, may not be following it so closely might think it's unsafe. It is safe. We have the most rigorous regime in the world in the United States. It's really a blue ribbon regulatory regime. But with respect to the waste, it is a legitimate issue, and we have to find a way to store it safely, and you can. So uh, that's why we've got to move forward. During the Obama administration, I remember there was an attempt, uh, and it still may be going on in Georgia, to build a couple of two new facilities. Oh, there is. It's still, it's still they'll going be, on. They'll be turned on, uh, you know, in a few months. But will that be the sort of capper of the big nuclear power plant facilities and the investment dollars? and the insurance mechanisms around them are going to gravitate toward these smaller uh, reactors? I, you know, we're seeing both. I'll just say that. Uh, those are called the Vodal plants mm -hmm. in, um, in Georgia, and they um, are Westinghouse AP1000 plants. They're big. Um, and, I just, you know, I just got back from uh, Poland and from Vienna. I was at the International Atomic Energy Agency conference and then went to Poland because Poland among other Eastern European countries, is really excited to be able to get nuclear as its option. It's very heavily dependent right now on coal. They want to flip over to safe nuclear. They'd like to partner with the United States. They want some of the big plants, but they also want some smaller ones. So they want both options. In the U.S., there's more interest in the smaller ones because they are a little more flexible uh, for next generation. So we'll see both. But but what I meant to say in my last um, my last soliloquy is that, uh, that the U.S. gets 52% of its clean power right now from nuclear. So taking them offline, like some want to do, like Germany has done, means that you have got to find that much more baseload clean power, which is not an easy task. So for the foreseeable future, from your vantage point as the energy secretary of this country, nuclear has not only got to be a current part of the equation, but a larger part of the equation? Well, I think it's got to be, it, we've got to keep at least the... 20%. Right. What we've got in terms of our overall. Um, we, But this is not a silver bullet. It is silver buckshot. So we've got to do, I mean, the lowest hanging fruit is renewables, right? Solar, wind, we installed record amounts last year. We sh we've got to double that, triple it. 
We've got to significantly increase wind and solar, and that's the cleanest and cheapest form of uh, clean energy. And then we've got to do the others as well, including decarbonizing the fossil fuel. That is the voice of Jennifer Granholm, Secretary of Energy of the United States Government. I'm Major Garrett. We are at Atlas Brewing Company. I'm told there's some pizza en route. We'll find out about that in segment four in just one second. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Yes, the pizza has arrived. Andy's Pizza here at Atlas Brewing Company, mostly solar-powered. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to look at the camera. I forget all the cues. Jake, thank you for that. Arden, thank you for that. I'll remember the camera until I forget about it. (laughs) Madam Secretary, it's great to have you with us. Reintroducing her, Jennifer Granholm, Secretary of the Department of Energy. So I want to go back to Colonial Pipeline for a second. That was a scary thing for the country. Did the media make too much out of that? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think because there were so many people all up and down the eastern seaboard who couldn't access gasoline and such a basic need, I don't think the media made too much of it. And was that for the industry a wake-up call? It was. It was, That was really a wake-up call because I don't think people realize that all of these operators of critical infrastructure mm, are... <laughs> Love me some pizza. Right. Well, all of these operators of critical infrastructure now are receiving these ransomware threats. They're being hacked, etc. So we're at a moment where there has to be the sharing of information. And previously, private sector entities didn't want to admit that they were either hacked or that they had been the victim of a ransomware attack. I'm going to tell you a story, Madam Secretary. Tell me. I was back in my hometown of San Diego not too long ago, and I met some people who, let us just say, are in the utility business. And we were having a conversation. I asked them about this very thing. And I won't name the company because it would be uh, inappropriate, but they said they are hit by an attempted ransomware attack 60,000 times a day. It's unbelievable. Does that number surprise you? No, it doesn't because I think I've talked to that very same utility and I have... I'm, I am aware. I am aware. So 60,000 times a day there is an attempted penetration. Some are less sophisticated than others. Some are just... But what our concern is that there are sophisticated malign actors, both inside and especially outside the United States, who are who have developed this expertise that is very disturbing. And this is why, whereas before the private sector could operate under silos and try to take care of it on their own, we're at a place now where you have to share information. So one of the things, for example, in the infrastructure bill, there is a significant amount of money for us to be able to test equipment on our electricity grid to ensure that um, if we are getting a piece from somewhere else and it's not manufactured in the United States, or even if it is manufactured in the United States, that it doesn't have embedded software codes and ability for penetration by a malign actor. So it's really, cyber is really important. I want to talk to you about solar for a second. As I continue to uh, feast on Andy's pepperoni pizza. Outstanding. It makes me so happy mm-hmm. you're eating with, <laughs> and conversing she, with she, your mouth full. She's, no. she's, 
No, I'm just kidding. She says I'm, restraining herself. I am restraining. From saying, don't talk with your mouth full. What's wrong with you? Um, so, solar power. Um, some listeners and viewers of this program might remember, I'm building a house in the desert in Southern California where I grew up. And uh, under California law, starting in 2020, any new construction for a single-family home has to be carbon neutral. It cannot have an added carbon footprint. So I'll have a whole lot of solar on, on, my, on my roof when it's, when, it's, when it's eventually built. I haven't even broken ground yet, but when it's eventually built, we'll have a lot of solar. And anyone who gets into this world knows that you can create it and store it, but you can't move it very well. Mm-hmm that that's one of the great hurdles technologically for our country in moving solar from... Well, you have to have a grid that, that right, takes it. Yes. Right. How do we solve that problem? Well, again, I don't mean to keep harping on the infrastructure bill, but there will be a grid deployment authority at the Department of Energy that allows us to be able to plan with our national labs where the transmission lines should be and making sure that we get over what is known as the NIMBY, the not in my backyard problem, which um, many historically transmission lines have had by focusing on first publicly owned property, public lands. So let's take that as a first so that we don't disturb any private sector landholder. Uh, or along rights of way, like freeways, mm-hmm. uh, where, where the United States already has an interest in easement. Um, and then third, obviously having a conversation with uh, landowners if they're interested in compensating them for it. But what we want to do first is to make sure we take the, e- the path of least resistance. Right. And that's part of, uh, of what will be in that infrastructure bill. And do I misunderstand solar in the sense that I've been told that it is easy to store on site, but it's hard to move and it's hard to keep, you lose generations of well, power. Yes. Is that true? That You do lose some incremental generation, uh, you know, some incremental power along the way. That's why, again, you've got to continue to invest in the upgrading of transmission lines mm-hmm. so that you don't have antiquated lines, which are inefficient. Which and we so, do now. Which we do now. And right. this is why, I mean, it's for both for, we have to invest in the grid for resiliency, for efficiency, for capacity, because we have to add all these renewables on, and for cyber. So if I hear you, Madam Secretary, what you're saying to any fence-sitting House Democrat is you've got to vote for this infrastructure. You have to vote for it, for the future of the country. You know, Regardless it is just... of what happens to reconciliation. Yeah, yeah. Well, reconciliation is going to happen. You know, it is going to happen. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer will move then that. Then the president will make it happen. Yes, yes. It's just a question of what that finally looks like. But the bottom line is we absolutely need both the human as well as the physical infrastructure. Describe a cabinet meeting with President Biden. What's it like? Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I just I love our president so much because he is such a good human being. So a cabinet meeting... We actually, the first uh, cabinet meeting we had, we couldn't even have in the cabinet room because we had to be far apart. Once we were able to have cabinet meetings in the cabinet room, it's much closer together, but everybody's been vaccinated. And in fact, before you go to the cabinet meeting, you have to be tested as well as, of course, having been vaccinated so everybody's clear. He- um, Do you wear masks in those? um, We do not, we have not worn a mask in the cabinet meetings once people have been tested. But only if they've been, t- you know, right. nobody's allowed in. You have to actually wear a wristband from the testing entity to, sh- right. to prove that you are that you are good. But at the Trump uh, cabinet meetings, they'd go around and have someone would say, everyone would say something great about the oh, president. No, no, no. No, does that, no. that does not happen. Although 
you know, it could easily just sue a sponte, but uh, on their own. But, but because we we feel so uh, strongly about how how good he is and his vision and his boldness about fixing things, he feels like you know we have a limited amount of time, and we've got to do what we can for people in an era of huge inequality, in an era where you need to invest in the bones of our nation to be competitive globally. Um, in an era where we're facing global threats. One, one quick thing before yeah. I let you go, and before we round out for our radio audience. We've got 52 seconds left. President Obama in his, stimulus, in his first year spent about $984 billion. If, let's just say, for the sake of argument, the, the reconciliation bill comes in at $2 trillion, let's just pick a number. President Biden will have in his first calendar year, if infrastructure is also passed, overseen more than $5 trillion of investment and in spending in this country, making Barack Obama look like Hubert Hoover by comparison. I mean, just wrap your head around that. Explain to my audience and other progressive Democrats what's already gone on or what's in the pipeline. Yeah, I mean, first of all, be aware. If you go to any airport in this country and you see the condition it's in, if you drive on roads in this country and you see the condition they're in, you know we have got to invest in our nation for the future. You know we have got to invest in our people to make sure that they've got the skills to be able to compete in a, in a very connected global economy. This, if we're not worth that investment, you know, shame on us. We love our country. We're going to invest in it. However, be very clear that it is paid for. The president does not want to jack up deficits and debt. He wants to ensure it's paid for. And it's going to be paid for by those who have benefited the most from our country's largesse. Those who are the wealthiest, those who have the, the corporations who have not paid their fair share, corporations who have paid zero in taxes. Come on, that's not right. People should, we should all be contributing. And that's what the president believes. So, but people who make under 400000 a year, to be very clear, will not see one dime in tax increases. That is the voice of the Energy Secretary of the United States, Jennifer Granholm. Madam Secretary, it's been a pleasure. We need to say good, goodbye to our radio audience, but for those of you watching on CBSN and on the podcast platform, stay tuned for your takeout outtake especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We are, I am eating Andy's pizza, delicious pepperoni pizza. We are at... I am trying to be reasonable. That is the voice of the Energy (laughs) Secretary of the United States, Jennifer Granholm. We're at Atlas Brewing Company, uh, right near Nationals Park, somewhat near downtown Washington, D.C., mostly powered by renewable energy, which is kind of the theme of our conversation. So, Madam Secretary, this is the fun and games part of our conversation. Okay. Not that you haven't had fun already. I mean, it's come on. It's been a blast. Exactly. Thank you. Exactly. So, we have three threshold questions we've asked every guest on this program for running on now five years. Our audience loves the answers to this. Last week on Twitter, someone complained that I didn't ask them of Dr. Fauci. It was the third time you've been on the show, the first time he got the questions. Okay, so folks, I always ask the questions, but I don't ask them a second time. First time at our microphone, so here they are. Take them in whatever order. Don't be worried. They're not, they're not terrible. They're very easy. So, uh, most influential book in your life, one of your favorite movies or all-time favorite movies, 
And if you're going to uh, fly back to Michigan or you're going to drive somewhere in that beautiful state and you have a good deal amount of time on your hands and you really want to have some fun listening to music, really, really want to indulge, what kind of music are you listen to, artist or genre? Oh, I love it. Okay, I will listen to Bruce Springsteen any time of the week and Aretha Franklin. Um, so Frequently music. mentioned as answers to that question. Are they? Yes. Dang. Uh, Bruce Springsteen and you 2 are by far the two oh. most frequently mentioned. Ed Sheeran, too. I like Ed Sheeran. Uh, followed no. by the Rolling Stones. Hardly anyone says Led Zeppelin or Steely Dan, but that's my own cross to bear. Anyway, go ahead, <laughs> Madam Secretary. Um, movie. Um, a movie that I think is just amazing is um, Life is Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, Roberto Benigni mm-hmm. and shielding a child from the horrors of uh, of Nazism and a book well of course Bible influential book yes frequently but, mentioned always uh, of course of course um, but in addition to that I would say uh, I'm in the middle of reading uh, listening to actually yes um, Parting the Waters by Taylor Branch mm-hmm. which is fantastic um, deep historical book about the civil rights movement and uh, how the waters were parted mm-hmm. and playing off of that um, we had Abraham X. Kendi on this program a couple of months ago and we've talked a lot about in the last year the reckoning the country is going through and part of that reckoning is there were those in the country principally among those who were white in America who thought well after the civil rights movement and all that went into that, we were essentially done. Mm-hmm. And we're not. No, we're and not. George Floyd wasn't the only reason we realized it, but it was a significant additive to something that had been accumulating, it seems to me, for a while. And it kind of, in a moment, in a way, pushed everything up to the surface that had been bubbling for a while. What has been your, what are your thoughts about that reckoning, where we are, how does government, uh, operate and function better in that? Well, I would say that it is almost easier to um, amend the stuff between the covers of a law book, statutes, than it is to amend the stuff between the ears. And when people are afraid, they do horrible things, afraid of loss, afraid of whatever... And I do think that um, that as I'll speak for myself, I feel like as a white American, I have an extra responsibility to make sure that in my own realm and to the extent that I have a voice, mm-hmm. that I speak and in an, in a way that calls other white people to understand their responsibility. Not that white people alive today are to blame for what happened during the civil rights movement but there is a a scar on our soul and we all need to play a role in healing it but particularly i think there is a special responsibility on the part of of white americans to do that um and then in a policy realm let me just say a quick word about what we're doing at the department of of energy and what the president wants to do he has a whole justice 40 initiative which it means that 40 percent of the benefits 
of um, the clean energy investments should go to communities that have been left behind. Could be communities of color, could be fossil communities that have seen their jobs leave. But there's a real special attentiveness to communities that have been unseen and have been have borne the brunt of this transition to uh, clean energy or borne the, the brunt of living in poor communities and systemic and historical racism. Or borne the brunt of pollution. Or, right, being on the front line of smokestacks, uh, you know, where kids have way disproportionate asthma in African-American communities, for example. I mean, we know all the statistics, but yeah. So an effort to remedy uh, that is part of, I think, what uh, we can do and still, and especially using that in reaching our goals. Excellent. That's the voice of the Energy Secretary of the United States government. Her name is Jennifer Granholm. Madam Secretary, it's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks, Thanks for hanging so out much. with me. You bet. We'll see you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. I'm Mo Rocca, and I'm excited to announce season four of my podcast, Mobituaries. I've got a whole new bunch of stories to share with you about the most fascinating people and things who are no longer with us. From famous figures who died on the very same day to the things I wish would die, like buffets. Listen to Mobituaries with Mo Rocca on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.